Well, good morning. And I want to, before I start, I just want to personally thank so many of you who prayed for our daughter, our, our daughter Kaylee Grace, for her heart surgery she had over a month ago. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I just, uh, we really do greatly appreciate the prayers and just the kind words of so many phone calls that were bestowed on us. And so many of you sacrifice your time to go before the throne of grace. And that we're just blessed by that. So our daughter's doing well. And that is good. Yeah, she's doing well. She is eating nonstop. Um, and so uh, she does a lot of good things. She's a, she's a, she likes to roughhouse. And it's just amazing. You know, not even only five weeks ago, she's been climbing and jumping everywhere. So pretty amazing that she had open heart surgery. So we're, just, we're just so thankful for God in that. So thanks again for that. Also, um, if I sound like Rocky this morning, um, I have a deeper voice. I have a cold. So please uh, bear with me on that. But in 1981... A man by the name of Bill entered the Pepsi Challenge 10,000-meter race in Omaha, Nebraska. Surgery 10 years earlier for an aneurysm in the brain had left his left side paralyzed. So on this misty July morning, he stood with 1,200 other men to begin the race. The gun sounded, the crowd surged forward, And Bill threw his stiff leg forward. He pivoted on his other foot as it hit the ground. His slow plop, plop, plop rhythm seemed to mock him as the pack raced on ahead. Sweat rolled down his face. Pain pierced his ankle, but he kept on going. Some of the runners completed the race in about 30 minutes. But two hours and 29 minutes later, Bill reached the finish line. A man approached from a small group of remaining bystanders. Though exhausted, Bill recognized him from pictures in the newspaper. He was Bill Rogers, the famous marathon runner, who then draped his newly won medal around Bill's neck. Bill Broadhurst's finish was as glorious as that of the world's greatest, though he finished dead last. Why? Because he ran with perseverance. He had that determination, which is, as one author says, unhasting, unresting, unhurrying, and yet undelaying. It goes steadily on and refuses to be deflected. Obstacles will not dawn it. Delays will not depress it. Discouragements will not take its hope away. It will halt neither for discouragement from within nor for opposition Without that is what Bill had. But do you have that? Are you able to persevere under constant criticism at work? Are you able to persevere when you're hurting physically or emotionally or tired? Are you able to persevere in disciplining your children when it continually inconveniences you? Are you able to persevere When your spouse incessantly begs you not to serve at the church. Are you able to go on when others around you are seemingly blessed financially with their children and with their health? Do you have that determination in your Christian walk to be able to endure to the end? In another way, can you take a licking and keep on spiritually ticking? Many people are like a lit candle that eventually flame out 
at the end. They don't persevere to the end. Does this describe you? How are you doing in your spiritual walk today, right now? If you were to evaluate yourself, are you running for the gold in the Christian race? Or are you complaining about the burdensome cramps along the way? Are you making excuses or are you persevering even with a lifeless leg? Again, I'll ask the question, where are you at in your race that is set before you? Is this your desire to bring glory to God? It is my desire for you that you run for the gold in your Christian race. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, where we find a group of people who were struggling in their Christian race. They had tempted to give up and to get out, not to finish the marathon. The circumstances that these readers found themselves in called for serious warning and intense encouragement. The author's purpose was to keep them from drifting away from the things they had heard, to guard them from an evil heart of unbelief and falling away from the living God. He wanted to arouse them to stop dilly-dallying around the elementary things so they would, that they wouldn't just be dull of hearing. Often he did this through sharp warnings on apostasy. One of those warnings was in chapter 10. And it's interesting, at the end of chapter 10, he goes after them and says, listen, don't be those who are those who have unbelief, who don't believe and trust in God to the very end. And then right after that, in chapter 10, he goes ahead and he gives a whole list of people, men and women, who were faithful and who persevered. They didn't drift away, which is what the author was going after. So he, he tries to encourage them, follow their example. Then after that list of a chapter 11, which is called, I call it the Hall of Faith, we get to chapter 12. Verse 1 here. And so follow along as I read chapter 12 and verse 1. This is what the author says. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The readers would have known by now, as they had been listening to all the other instruction in Hebrews, that one of the greatest dangers in the Christian life is to remain stationary. And not advance beyond the beginnings of your walk with the Lord. One author says that this almost inevitably leads to backsliding and sin. This must not happen. We must persevere to the end. Do you want to persevere to the end? Is it your desire to be taken to heaven someday and hear the Lord say, Well done, my good and faithful servants. If that is, 
I beg of you to listen and take heed from the word of God today. The recipients of Hebrews, as I said before, were in danger of spiritually cramping up in their race. So the author wanted to help them. In order to help them, he gave them three instructions so that they might persevere in their spiritual race. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to go through and learn these three instructions so that you and I, in obeying this, will be able to persevere and at some day hear that from our precious Savior. Are you ready for the gold? Now, before I get into those three instructions, I want to point out exactly what we're actually involved in. Look with me here in verse 1. This is what it says. It says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You and I, as believers, are in a spiritual race. It's another name for a Christian walk. Paul used this terminology often about his own walk. He was in a race. This is a contest. There are several features about this race I want to point out that will help us in your own, that help you and I in our own race. First of all, when we're racing in this race, we're not competing against each other. We're not trying to outdo other believers in recognition or in righteousness or accomplishments. That's very important. Ours is not a race of works, but a race of faith. Yet, we do not even compete with each other in faith. We compete by faith, but not with each other. Our competition is against Satan, his world system, and is on our own sinfulness. Secondly, when we run this race, our strength is not in ourselves, but in the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we would never endure. And that's great to hear we, where our source of strength is. We're going to run in the race. Third, and this is very critical, this race is not some passive luxury. It's demanding. It's grueling. It's agonizing. The word for race itself is the word agon, which is where we get agony. It is an intense effort. One author says this, God's people are not called to lie around on beds of ease. We are, we are to run a race that is strenuous and continuous. In God's army, we are never to hear at ease. We are to stand, to stand still or to go backward is to forfeit the prize. Many Christians, though, don't have that effort. I mean, you look at Christians, right? Here they are. They're starting a race, right? And, you know, some Christians just kind of walk through the race, right? You know? You know, maybe some others, you know, they get out there, you know, they're jogging, right? Some just jog in place. They seem like they don't go anywhere. But we're called to run, to sprint. You know what's amazing is one of the things that has boggled my mind is to watch people not give all their effort when they compete in an athletic event. It blows me away that somebody could not give all their effort in everything they do. And it's, I sit back and I wonder... Shucks, why is it that we, even as believers in our own spiritual race, why don't we give all our effort? This is what we're called to do. We are called to run the race, the intense race that we have. But how long are we to run, you may ask? And that leads us to our fourth point about this, is that it's a long run. We're supposed to work hard all the time, but in a sense, it's a marathon. It's not a 100-meter dash. 
It is a steady determination to keep going. It is. It carries the idea that even as the, you may have a desire to slow down, you've just been through so many battles and there's so many things you're like, I don't know if I can go on. You just say, no, I'm not going to let this cramp slow me down. I'm going to persevere to the very end. There will be obstacles and there's weariness in the race. No doubt about that. But we must endure. He calls it a race of endurance. The readers here in Hebrews were struggling with this. They weren't carrying on. They were letting things take them away from running the race. And this author was passionately trying to get on the stop. And it's my desire the same way. I want you to run this race with endurance, to be exhilarated in this race, to be able to finish the way God wants you to. In order to do that, the author so graciously gives us a layout. He gives us a blueprint of how to run the race. He gives us the three instructions that we're going to look at for the rest of the day. The first instruction that he gives us is to remember the faithful runners. Remember the faithful runners. Look with me at verse one. He says, therefore, and again, this is I always teach when every time you see a therefore, you want to ask, why is it, what is it there for? Very good. Okay. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us, and he goes on and tells us what to do. We have a great cloud of witnesses, specifically the readers who were receiving this information from the author of Hebrews. It says they had a great cloud of witnesses. Well, who was this cloud? I mean, what is a cloud? I mean, we we look in the sky. It was this dense mass of people that he's referring to. And who were these people? Well, in chapter 11, as I mentioned just briefly before, the author enlists a number of men and women who were faithful, who had gone on before. These men and women were what the author called witnesses. They were those who were not spectators necessarily in an arena surrounding us and cheering us on saying, all right, let's go. But they were witnesses testifying of the work that God had already done in their life. And in the same way, they're testifying to us. And how are they testifying to us? Well, we have, we have the story right here in the word of God. We can read it in scripture and hear about how God worked in their life. And they're still in that sense, testifying to us. They're there. They're not necessarily in the bleachers looking down from heaven saying, okay, get on it. All right, good job. Way to, way to jump over that hole. Way to get out of the obstacle. No, but they are testifying of what God had done. But the question is this. Remember the purpose that this author had here was to have the people run with perseverance, run with endurance. How would this be motivational to help the readers and you and I run with perseverance? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked, because I'm going to answer it for you. We are all creatures of motivation. We need a reason to do things. I mean, I look at my children. My oldest son, well, Josh, I mean, you only have one son, but Josh, he, uh, I mean, he's always looking for things to do. I mean, if you say, hey, Josh, well, you know, we'll give you a, a lollipop. Oh, you know, okay. He, he runs to do it. You know, he, you know before he's dilly down around. And it's amazing sometimes. There's motivational. But we, you and I are the same way. In many ways, we, we need that. And these people would have been that motivational. They had gone on before them and inspired them. 
what, what did some of these faithful people of chapter 11 do? And I enlisted them here. Let me read them for you what they did and how this would have been encouraging to those who are reading. And hopefully it will be to you. This is what they did. They left their homeland. They trusted in God. They opposed Pharaoh. They forsook the pleasures of this world. They passed through the Red Sea, shouted down the walls of Jericho, conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong in weakness, were mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, received back their dead by resurrection, were tortured, mocked, scourged, imprisoned, stoned, sawn into, dressed to animal skins, afflicted, ill-treated, were made destitute all for the sake of faith. This is who makes up this great cloud of witnesses. And this is encouraging because of this. The same God that enabled them was and is our same God that can enable us. He hasn't changed. We can run as well as they did. It has nothing to do with how we compare with them, but in how our God compares with theirs. Because we have the same God, he can do the same things through us if we trust him. Think about that. God used humans. We're humans. They were sinners. We're sinners. They're sinners saved by God's grace. So are we. He used them to do muddy things. And we have that same God. And here the readers would have heard, whoa, and look at all what they did. Man, I can do that. Now, how many of you, fair enough, have ever seen a movie or read a book, read a story or seen something on TV where you've seen someone do something inspirational? I mean, he, he, you know, he has a broken leg or he has cancer or something and he still goes on. I mean, you're like, whoa, if they can do it, I can do it. I mean, it's inspirational. It really inspires. And this is what these guys were doing. Remember those who have gone before. Remember that God has used them and he can use you in the same way. That helps us persevere because we're like, oh, man, I don't know if I can go on. You go, oh, oh, yeah. I remember that guy. I mean, look at him. He was going through the same struggle and God enabled him to do it. All right. I can go on and do it. This is what you and I must do in order to run with perseverance. But in order to live a life of faith like these ones here, We must follow the second instruction, and that is you must lay aside limiting hindrances. You must lay aside limiting hindrances. Look with me at verse one. The author says, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. There's two things we're supposed to lay aside. One is, what does it say? Encumbrance, a weight, a burden, your translation may have. And also, secondly, the sin. So what, what are these things? Let's take, let's take a look at the first one. It says, firstly, the weight. You want to lay aside a weight. Well, what is a weight? It, it's a bulk or a mass. The best way I like to define it is this, and I'm going to say it twice so you can write it down. It is basically anything that weighs us down, diverts our attention, saps our energy, and dampens our enthusiasm for the things of God. Let me repeat it. It is basically anything that weighs us down, diverts our attention, 
saps our energy and dampens our enthusiasm for the things of God. And I want to stress, it is not a sin. It's different from sin. He doesn't say it's a sin. He says the next thing is a sin. But I'm really point that out. Well, when you race, if you're, and I, I've never really run before but in terms of in a, on a track team or anything like that. But when you race, one thing you want to do is you don't want to be running with a lot of extra things on you, like these weights. Let me give you an example. All right. Okay, over here, we got one guy right here. We got another guy right next to him. This, they have equal ability. This guy here on the left, we're looking straight ahead of me. Okay, my left now. Okay, here he is. He's ready to go. But interesting about him, he has three layers of clothes on. He has a parka. He has a hat on. Plus, he, he has snow boots. Now, the guy right to, you know, right to the right of him, he's over here, has the same ability. Here he is. All he has on is his shorts, his shirt, and his sneakers. Now, which or his running shoes, okay? I call them sneaks. Okay, now, which one of those two would ha- most likely is going to win the race? The one, right, the one with the sneakers, very good, okay? The one, the one on the right. I mean, and think about this. I mean, this guy would be better take off his snow boots and run barefoot than in those boots. Now, if you th- now this is my point. Is it easier for this one on the left with the snow boots and the parka on to persevere or this guy? You have all these burdens on you and you're running a race, you're trying to run a marathon. You're going to tire out much quicker than you were if you just had the little bit of clothing on. In the same way in our walk, you will not be able to persevere if you have all these burdens weighing you down. You know it's easier to hike up a mountain with just with just a backpack without anything on than it is with a backpack you know, full of all this food and everything in your back. It's harder to persevere with those things. And this is what the author wanted to do. The readers evidently had some burdens. He doesn't say what what they were, but I think the burdens they had was that they were going back to the, their old covenant. They were Jews that, and they were saying, okay, you know what? Let's go back and add on some of these old covenant the things, the things that were in Judaism. And these weren't wrong per se, but they didn't have any value now. And then they were sapping the energy and attention from Christian living. But look at your life. Are there any things in your life that are holding you back from running with full maximum potential? I mean, is there anything in your life? Let me give you a couple suggestions, which might be a hindrance. And again, they may be a hindrance to you. They may not. They're different for each person. But I'm going to suggest a couple. Is your own laziness hindering you? Are, Are you, by your own self, hindering yourself? Are you not able to run the race well because you are not spiritually trim? Or do you spend any time in prayer and mining the nuggets out of the Bible? Some people are just lazy and they, just, and they hold themselves back. Another one. How about your hobbies or your interests? Are you using your entire free time to enjoy hobbies instead of ever serving in the church or praying? Again, they're not bad in and of themselves, but are they holding you back? You know, I, I just personally, let me give an example of my own life. I, I was really working through the sermon and just my whole entire life. I was thinking, well, what are some things that are not sinful in my own life that at times hold me back? And, and the first thing that came to my mind is my love for sports. I, I love sports. 
And sports aren't bad in themselves, but, but sometimes, and I, know, I'm, I don't know if it happens to you, you know, here I am, I'm reading the Bible and I'm praying, and all of a sudden, I think about Philadelphia sports. Now, not that that's bad, I mean, but, but what I'm trying to say is like, oh, I don't want to think about that at the moment. I mean, that's holding me back from having uninterrupted time with the Lord. What, what is it in your life that may come to your mind constantly when you're praying or in the word? What is it that, that comes to your forefront that may not be a sin in and of itself? Are you thinking about what you're going to do with your spouse that evening? Are you thinking about that test you have coming up? Oh, man, I got that test. Are you thinking about what that person said to you? Well, they said that to me. I wonder what that means. Well, I don't know. Is he like me? I don't know. And you, and you start going back and forth. And what happens? You stop running the race. And it's hard to go on. I don't know what it is in your life. and I can't pinpoint it. That's something that I want you to do before the Lord. But this is something that I noticed in my life. Let me ask another question. Could it be a burden would be other believers? Listen to me. We need to be careful about blaming others for our shortcomings. But a number of believers not only are not running themselves, but are keeping others from running. In one sense, they are figuratively sitting on the track. And those who are running have to hurdle them. Often the workers in the church have to keep jumping over or running around people who are not in the game. One person says, the devil does not put all the encumbrances in the way. Sometimes we do his work for him. Are, are other believers doing it? Burdening you? Finally, I want you to turn with me to Luke twenty-one thirty-four, And the last bur- suggested burden may be the cares of life. Turn with me to Luke 21, verse 34. The cares of life, are they burdening you so much that you are having a tough time to persevere? And in this text, it's interesting, Jesus is talking to the disciples here. Verse 34, Luke 21. Be on guard. Okay, what do we have to be on guard for? Well, he tells us, so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness, sins, and goes on, and the worries of life. J.C. Ryle, in commenting on this, says, Excess in eating and drinking is not the only excess which injures the soul. There is an excessive anxiety about the innocent things of this life, which is just as ruinous to our spiritual prosperity and just as poisonous to the inner man. Happy is he who has learned to hold the things of this world with a loose hand and to believe that seeking first the kingdom of God is important. The cares of life. You may say, but John... I got, I got to take care of my family. That's true. We're called to do that. I, I got to pay the bills. You don't understand. Maybe these things are weighing on me. Let me ask you, sort of think about this. Are, they, are those things, just the, the normal cares of life, are they weighing you down? Are you really thinking about, man, how am I going to pay this bill? And it just takes you away from service to the Lord. And, and you, is it the fact, like, man, I got I to do this at work. I got to do that, this and that. And I'm not saying don't work hard at those things. And I'm not saying in and of themselves they're bad. But what I'm saying is, are they hindering you? Are they stifling you from running to the fullest? I heard a story once of a runner, and it's not me, okay? And he had won an Olympic gold medal, definitely not me, for the 100 meters. 
But when he attempted to run a race shortly thereafter, he didn't even qualify. In the interview, this is what he said. The answer is simple why he couldn't run and win. I'm overweight. I had trained too little and I'd eaten too much. Because of a few pounds, he was no longer a winner. Only a few burdens can stifle you from running the race to the end. You must lay down whatever non-sinful item that is holding you down. But beyond that, turn back with me to Hebrews 12, and we'll find out what else we're supposed to lay down. And again, when I say lay down, I'm, I'm talking about, like if I was up here and I took my, my jacket off and laid it on the ground, because I don't want to have it on anymore, because you know, it's burdening me when I'm trying to walk around, right? And I say, oh, I've got to get it off, so it's not burdening me. That's the same thing. That's what you need to do with these cares or whatever it is, these burdens. But beyond that, we're also supposed to lay down, look what it says in verse 1, the sin which so easily entangles us. Evidently, there was a specific sin that the readers were struggling with. It doesn't say here what it is, but I think it might have been unbelief. A desire not to trust in God anymore because it was too hard to be a Christian in that time. What is there in your own life that's holding you back? What sinful thing? Again, I want to point out a hindrance or an encumbrance may not be a burden for you, which is a burden for me. But sin is a burden for all of us that we must get rid of. You must take out the dagger and go in there and slice it and dice it. Get it out of your life. It boggles me that we can try to run to be holy and have sin weighing us down. You just can't do it. A person cannot take fire into his bosom and not get burned. We have to not tolerate sin. It'll wear us down. If it is your desire to persevere and endure, please get rid of these items. If you don't, you will struggle. If you were running a race in the Olympics, you wouldn't want to carry baggage. So why would we want to carry baggage in our spiritual life? Go in right now. Take a look at your life. What burdens, what sins are weighing you down? Just get them out and you'll be able to persevere to the fullest. This is what he says right here. So many times, this boggles me to think about this. We're so enraptured with this world that that we just love it so much and we, we, we make this place our home and we forget that we're just passing through and heaven is our home. And we spend all our times, spend much of our time just trying to do things for this life instead of the life we have ahead of us as a believer. And I recognize those things in themselves aren't bad, but don't let it keep you from pursuing God. A lot of times, uh, this example, when a, run, when a runner, we, you know, we have these two runners over here, and what happens? They have a lot of clothes, once one runner has a lot of clothes on, and he can trip them up. And I don't want you to see you all tripped up. One of the ways, though, that makes that, you're, that you won't trip up is if you keep your eyes on the right place. And that leads us to our third instruction. 
Fix your eyes on the perfect example. Fix your eyes on the perfect example. We need to remember the faithful runners. We need to lay aside the burdens, the limiting hindrances. And third, we need to fix our eyes on the perfect example. Now, when you run, or in most sports, it is important where you look. I mean, can think about this, right? I mean, if you're out there running, and you're running, and you're, you're sprinting, and you're looking at the guy behind you, that, that can't be helpful. I mean, I mean, if you're out there and you're looking at the crowd, and you're waving, trying to wave to your friends. Um, you know, I go so slow that I probably have the time to do that. But if I'm out there, right, and, you know, a track's circular, and I keep running down here, and, you know, it keeps, and, oh, you know, and you bump into something, right? You know, that's what happens. You, can, you can't do that. You've got to keep your eyes on the perfect example. The Christian life is like that. Many times we don't look at the right way or the right object. And one author gave a real keen insight. He said this, some Christians look or are preoccupied with themselves. They may not be selfish or egotistical, but they pay too much attention to what they're doing to the mechanics of running. There is a place for concern, but if we focus on ourselves, we will never run for the Lord. Sometimes we are preoccupied with what other Christians are thinking and doing, especially in relation to us. Concern for others also has a place. We are not to disregard our brothers in Christ or what they think about us. What they think about us, including their criticism, can be helpful. But if we focus on others, we are bound to stumble. Just like when you drive your car, especially out here in the California freeways, you know, you have a little accident, you know, whoa, everybody's looking at, you know. You've got to keep your eye on Christ or you're going to have a spiritual accident. You must. And as I said, who are we supposed to look at? Who is the perfect example? Look what it says here in verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. The best place to look is not these runners or other people that you've seen faithful, but it is Jesus Christ himself. Now, why is he the perfect place to look? Well, again, look down here, verse 2. It says that he is the author or the leader and perfecter of faith. Now, I want to try to teach you something. For any of you who doesn't have a New American Standard Version, most of the translations translate it, the author and perfecter of our faith. They put the word our in there. And a lot of times that leads us to believe that what Jesus is doing is helping us with our faith. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. In the fact, in the Greek, that word our is not even there. It's not there at all. And he talks and it says, Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Well, whose faith is it? I believe it was the faith that Jesus had. He was a human. Jesus refers to his humanity. He was faithful in his humanity. And I think it makes so much sense because, remember, the purpose of this was for the author to get the readers to persevere. And what the best way to get them to persevere is to say, look at the perfect example who has faithful himself. 
Jesus was faithful. He was the perfect example of trust in his father. Let's just look at Hebrews. Turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 2. Hebrews 3 and verse 2. And this is exciting to see Jesus, the perfect example. Hebrews 3 and verse 2, it says this. He was faithful to him who appointed him. Look down with me at verse 6. It says, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house. He was faithful. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. Hebrews 4 and verse 15. This is a great text. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He endured the temptation. He had the devil personally come and try to tempt him in the wilderness. But each time his reply showed his trust in his father and his word. Jesus would not bypass the father's will just to get food or to test his father's protection or lordship. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus submitted to his father's will. Whatever the prospect of hardship or suffering, he trusted the father. His father's will was what he lived by and died by. It was all Jesus considered. He was faithful to the end which is why he is the perfecter of faith. Do you recognize that? He trusts in his father his entire life. In terms of his humanity there. That is amazing. The faith of all those heroes of chapter 11 pale in comparison to this perfect example. They were wonderful witnesses, but Jesus was the perfect one. In fact, this is such a great thought. That some, as somebody mentioned, without Jesus' faithfulness, no believer's faith would count for anything. If his perfect faith had not led him to the cross, our faith would be in vain. Because there would then be no sacrifice for our sins, no righteousness to count to our credit. Praise God that he was faithful to the end. What a glorious picture. What a glorious example we can look at. Jesus Christ, faithful to the end. Man, we're running a race and we're getting down. We're like, oh, yeah, look, he was perfect. Man, I want to I get to him. This is who we're called to look at. He is amazing in both his attributes and his actions. And one other exciting thing that it says about him here in chapter 12, and please turn back there, is this. And I'll I'll wait till you get there. But in Hebrews 12 and verse 2, it says, the author makes this comment about Jesus. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, by his faith, endured the cross. This the, the, the humiliation. He, he, he looked down on those, it says here, shame, who were saying, hey, look at that guy. That's, look how humiliating that is. He, he didn't, Jesus said, this isn't humiliating in the sense that this is the perfect will of God. And the reason he did it is for the joy that was set before him. 
He did not run the race of faith for the pleasure of the race itself, though he must have experienced some satisfaction in his race. He did not leave his father's presence and his heavenly glory, endure temptation and fierce opposition by Satan himself, and suffer ridicule, scorn, blasphemy, torture, and crucifixion by his enemies for the sake of pleasure on earth. He ran for the joy of exaltation. He had great joy in knowing that the believers would worship the Lord. There's joy in that, to know that those whom he was dying for on the cross would someday worship the Father. There's joy in that. He had great joy in knowing that ultimately he would be exalted and be in heaven. The prize Christians are to run for is not heaven. If we are truly Christians, if we belong to God by faith in Jesus, heaven is already ours. There is great joy, though, in knowing our future in heaven and our rewards. Follow along. If we work hard, if you work hard following these instructions right here, not just being a hearer, but a doer of the word, guess what? You'll hear, well done, my good and faithful servants. What I like to call the WD degree. Well done. I want to earn it. I want to graduate with flying colors. Do you want to do that? Here is the blueprint right in front of us. Remember the faithful runners. Lay aside hindrances. Look at the perfect example. And you'll get to the finish line. This is a story I want to share. When I was in college, I went to Cedarville College. It's now called University. And it was about 500 miles away from where I grew up in Philadelphia. And there was a snowstorm coming in. And my parents said, listen, John, you better get up early in the morning to drive out there. It was about an eight to nine hour drive as it is. And if the storm's coming, you may not even make it out. So I was like, okay. So my parents come in at like two or three in the morning. I've only gotten like two hours of sleep. He says, John, you got to get up and go right now. I said, what? I got to get up and go. And so I called the three other people that were riding back with me. And I called when they came down and we met at my house. And it was snowing. I'm talking, I'm talking snow. All right. This was blizzard conditions. It only been snowing for an hour. And I think there was only two inches on the ground. And I had this huge drive ahead of me. And I was like, all right. So. I start driving out, drive out, you know, get to the freeway, then get to the turnpike. We have what's called turnpikes in Pennsylvania. It's a toll road. So by the time I get to the turnpike, which is usually about a 20-minute drive, I had already seen about 15 accidents. And I'm thinking, shoot. I mean, I'm already, you know, I got, I got there, you know, eight hours to go. So I'm going, I'm going, I'm driving. Again, Pennsylvania is pretty mountainous. Not like out here, but in a sense, the height, but it is mountainous. And I'm driving through, it's driving through an accident after accident. Now here I am in my old station wagon with wood paneling on the side with three, with, you know, with three people in the car. And the thing is also has made it tough is these three were just very quiet and they were all sleeping. So here I am by myself, right? Just looking at cars sliding off the road, cars sliding off the road. I was like, oh man, this isn't good. And so I was going and finally we made it halfway. And we were just praising God. We got halfway. And by this time, it had been snowing the whole way. And I don't know how much was on the ground. But I know in some, there was huge snow drifts. So we get some lunch and we head back out. By the time I crossed Pennsylvania into West Virginia and get, and get it right on the border of Ohio, it was complete whites out. I couldn't see anything. 
um, I'd, I'd be riding on the freeway, you know, driving the freeway, and I, and I, and I didn't even know I was right next to a semi. And I get up there like, whoa, it's right there in front of me. This is like it's almost as close as this is. So you, you know, slow down, and you, you had no idea where it was going. It was this complete whiteout. And so many times I was like, why well, should I pull over? But I didn't have any cash, really. So I was like, well, I, I can't afford a hotel tonight, and I don't want to sleep in this car. Um, and so I'll just keep on trugging. And so I just keep on persevering. So I get by to Columbus, Ohio, and I've already been on the road now for about 12 hours. And uh, I was tired. You know, I already gotten like three hours of sleep, remember. So I was just, I, I had, I drank so much coffee. I was so wired, but uh, to try to keep awake. So anyway, I get to Columbus and it is this, it's night and I'm tired. And Cedarville, it's, you know, it's about 45 minutes away from where I was at. And I said, Lord, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can make it because I just heard on the radio also. I, I heard on the radio that they were shutting down all the freeways, everything. And they're pulling people over, but they let us go through. Um, I don't know why, but. But for the purpose, so I could learn something, so I could share with you today, I guess. But, um, <laughs> but what's interesting, I was just praying, Lord, help us to get there safely. And believe it or not, and no lie, a semi came onto the freeway, and I saw it up ahead. And the only thing that I could really make through through all, the, through all that was, was the back lights of the semi. And I was like, well, let me just follow the light. And so I followed the semi. And I was following the truck, and I was following it, following off. And believe it or not, it got off right at the exit. Then I didn't get off to go to college. And, that, and it was the whole way I followed the light all the way to my final destination. The point I want to make is this. You can persevere when you follow the light, and you'll make it to your destination. I want to be there someday to make it to the final destination. I want to sit back and I want to be able to hear my Savior say, Welcome into the joy of your Master. Do you want to run this race with endurance? It's possible if you follow what the Lord has laid out. Let's pray. Father, you are a great God. And Lord, I praise that our prayer would be like that song, that we would turn our eyes on you. Lord, just looking at the wonder of your glory and grace. And I pray that everything else will go strangely dim. Lord, I pray that we would remember those who have gone before us. Lord, I pray that we would lay aside the burdens and I pray that we would passionately follow you. Thank you for being the perfect example. Father, it's just, it's just overwhelming to be able to someday look at you face to face, even as taught last week. Please bring honor to yourself with the effort that we put forth here at Calvary Bible Church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.